0: Good morning again, Judges chapter 4, if you'd open your Bible there or navigate on your device, Judges in the Old Testament chapter 4, we're going to look at the entire chapter this morning, verses 1 through 24. The topic, a pagan woman named Jael kills the Canaanite captain by driving a tent peg through his head with a hammer. The title of our message? Bang, bang, J.L. Savage hammer came down on his head. No Beatles fans? What, come on. All right. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, as we settle in to listen to your word read and taught, as always, we need for the Holy Spirit to be the, the real teacher here. For you to take the words that are in this book bring them to the deepest part of our hearts where you divide between the soul and the spirit and speak to us personally. We trust that you're going to do that. And Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, we believe that your spirit can free their will and show them Jesus Christ on the cross, drawing all men to himself, and that they would come to belief in salvation. We thank you in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. amen. Rocky, Hoosiers, Rudy... Remember the Titans, Braveheart, they all have in common that the hero or the heroes are underdogs facing overwhelming odds. We love underdog stories as long as it's someone else, not us, facing overwhelming odds. If you're a Christian, you have underdog written all over you. Jesus said that since the world hated him, it will likewise hate you. Jesus promised you that out in the world, you would have tribulation. The world in which you are the underdog is ruled by the god of this world, Satan, who goes about like a roaring lion, seeking to devour you. He's not alone in his malevolent efforts, having at his disposal a third of all the created angels who fell with him. They are arranged into military hierarchies and are dispatched on well-planned campaigns to rob you, to kill you, and to destroy you. The odds seem overwhelming, But at the same time, you're told you need not be overcome. In the same verse where Jesus promised you tribulation, he quickly added, Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And then in First John, the apostle tells us that we have overcome the wicked one, referring to the devil. Now, if I'm being honest, I don't always feel like an overcomer. Spiritually, and physically, and emotionally, life seems totally overwhelming, especially when some trouble I'm experiencing seems to go on and on and on. It's during those times that we're supposed to find encouragement in the believers who have gone before us, uh, especially those recorded on the pages of the Bible. We see that they were underdogs against overwhelming odds who nevertheless overcame. Some overcame quickly, others over a longer period of time, but all would give testimony to God's faithfulness. We have an against-all-odds story in chapter 4 of the book of Judges. I'm going to pray that its retelling would encourage us. And I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, God has sent you out to overcome against overwhelming odds. And number two, God can see to it you overcome against overwhelming odds. Let's take a look at the deck that stacked against us in verses 1 through 9. Now, I should tell you going in, chapters 4 and 5 go together and tell the same story. Chapter 4 is a narrative that describes what happened. Chapter 5 is a praise song written to commemorate what happened. So the question, what happened, is answered in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. When Ahud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Ahud had been raised up by God as Israel's hero against King Eglon and the Moabites. After Ahud killed Eglon, the people of God had rest from their enemies for 80 years until Ahud died. Now, these heroes didn't physically keep Israel in check. He didn't go around threatening to kill anyone who got out of line. No, it was their lives that exerted a spiritual influence that kept Israel in check. Just being alive and having God's Uh, Spirit upon them kept Israel in check. Don't underestimate the influence you have as a believer. In fact, we know from reading the Thessalonian epistles in the New Testament that the church on earth as a whole exerts a holy influence on the world by restraining evil. And you might look around and think the church doesn't seem to be doing such a great job because evil is rampant. Uh, But it would be so much worse if the church was gone. The Holy Spirit inhabiting the church is restraining evil. And so imagine how bad it would be without us on the earth. And you don't have to imagine. You could just read the book of the Revelation during the time of the Great Tribulation and you'll see the conditions are awful, to say the least. It only takes mankind about seven years to ruin the world To a point where Jesus said, if he didn't return, no flesh would be left alive on the planet. And so, verse 2. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Herosheth Hagoyim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had nine hundred chariots of iron. And for twenty years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel." Sold them means they were subjugated by and they paid tribute to King Jabin. Jabin pretty much did whatever he wanted to, took whatever he wanted to, whenever he wanted to. They didn't every day for 20 years cry out to the Lord. They waited 20 years and then they cried out to the Lord. Last week I used the example of a child who won't repent but stays in time out until they are emaciated from missing so many meals. Admit it, you've been beaten by your children more than once when you've developed the just perfect discipline, whether it's a timeout or something else, and they they just they'll go the distance with you. Never underestimate the stubbornness of sin. Now this is the second of eight references to the nine hundred chariots of iron. They were the death star of that age. A moving war machine manned by a heavily armored and equipped soldier and accompanied by armored and armed infantry. Add to that, among God's people, we're going to be told in chapter 5, and this is a quote not a shield or a spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. They were unarmed against the most heavily armed force of the time. Do you remember Tank Man? That's the nickname of the unidentified man who stood in front of a column of tanks in June of 1989, the morning after the Chinese military suppressed the Tiananmen Square protest by force. As that lead tank maneuvered to pass by him, he repeatedly shifted his position in order to obstruct the tank's attempted path around him. You do some research on him, no one knows who he was or what happened to him or who was the tank crew and what happened to them. Uh, it's all shrouded in mystery during the year of the rooster, I guess. But uh, anyway, think of that. Would, think of standing in front of a tank as it's coming down uh, the road. Who in Israel would stand before the iron chariots of Jabin? Well, verse 4, now Deborah, some pronounce it Deborah, but I, I, I can't, I'm sorry. So Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now Deborah was the only female judge if in fact she was a judge. The verb form of the word judging tells us that she was engaged in legal matters. Israelites would come to her and present their cases looking for her to decide between parties or to give legal advice or interpretations of the law. This is different from the rest of the male judges who did not hold court, didn't listen to complaints, and didn't make legal decisions. All of the male judges were military guys, or at least they fought directly the enemy. Deborah never went Joan of Arc, but she stayed off of the field of battle. She will accompany Barak to this battle that we're going to read about, but she doesn't fight. Deborah was not providing military deliverance under her palm tree. The Israelites sought her out to obtain justice. Most commentators, nevertheless, include her in the list of judges God raised up. I have no problem calling her a judge, but she probably needs an asterisk next to her name to further explain. And what's really you want to note here, the thing to really note, rather than argue whether she was or wasn't a judge, is that just when you think you've got God figured out, he goes in a completely different direction. After reading about three heroes God raised up and how he used them, you're thinking that's what he's going to do time and time again. And then the next thing you read about is a woman sitting under a palm tree judging Israel. You can't put Jehovah in a corner. Verse 6. Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali. And she said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor? Take with you ten thousand men of the sons of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulun. And against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon. And I will deliver him into your hand. Now the wording makes it sound like Barak knew what he was supposed to do, but was disobeying. The original language doesn't indicate that at all. It reads like what it is, a prophecy telling him what to do. God spoke to Deborah, she sent for Barak to give him the prophecy. Now I'm not going to get into the male-female role discussion that sometimes dominates this story. A lot of people, that's all they want to talk about is the proper role of Deborah and Barak and all of that. I'm not saying roles are unimportant, they're super important. I'm saying that this passage isn't here in our Bible to teach us the proper submission of women or the need for courageous men of God to step up. There are plenty of New Testament passages that were written for those expressed purposes, and we don't want to read anything into this passage that wasn't. This is a history of how God used two remarkable people in an outside-the-box way in order to deliver his people. Regarding the roles of men and women, we must stay within biblical boundaries, but we remain flexible while within them to allow God to work. Technically, neither Deborah nor Barak was a judge, the way the other 11 guys in this book were, yet God used them as a team to deliver the Israelites in a remarkable way. And so verse 8, And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Nanny, nanny. (laughs) Barak had been given through the prophecy of a known prophetess the exact battle plan, as well as the absolute assurance of victory. Still, he hesitated, and he added his own conditions. Why? Well, I don't know why, but I say thank you. Even with the clear word of God, Barak hesitated. But God was patient with him. I'm grateful because I too hesitate to believe God even though I have the complete word of God. Admit it, not right now, but later you can. You don't always trust God's word. You want to, you think you should, you know you should, but there are times when you wonder if God's really going to come through for you. We have the completed, inspired word of God and we doubt how much more Barack, living in the times that he lived in listening to the prophecy of a a prophetess. And so I'm thankful for his unbelief, as it were, for his doubting, because in spite of it, God used him. And in spite of it, God uses us. And so verse 9, so she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you're taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Now, to her credit, Deborah was flexible. She could have refused and left them in some kind of a stalemate. I mean, it wasn't part of the prophecy that she go along. This was a, a human condition that Barak had added. And although it's clear Barak was wrong to ask her to accompany him, why not go? Her prophecy was solid, so she was in no danger. She'd have a bird's eye view, a front row seat at the fulfilling of this prophecy, and it was going to be a magnificent day in the history of Israel. Now, she utters another prophecy, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. We'll see that it isn't her, it's Jael, uh, this pagan gal. But uh, keep this in mind, God. we're going to talk about God's providence a little later on. God tells Barak what to do, and if he had done it straight out, he would have gotten the glory, which in this context means he would have been the one to kill Sisera. But because he balked, God said, well, okay, I'm still going to give Israel the victory, but I'm going to do it a little bit differently than I had planned. And so he was reacting to the free will decision of Barak. He still got his will accomplished, that's God's providence, but he didn't violate this man's free will. Very important point as we go through this word. So that's the setup for the battle. 10,000 unarmed men against 900 iron chariots and a multitude of heavily armed and armored infantry. The strategy for the battle was for the Israelites to reveal themselves unarmed on the field of battle and then just stand there waiting for Sisera's soldiers to annihilate them. Literally, their strategy was to take a stand against overwhelming odds and trust that the Lord would intervene. Does that sound familiar to you? Yes. It does if you're reading Ephesians chapter 6 where it says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Against an army described by the Apostle Paul as principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places, we're to believe that truth, righteousness, peace, faith salvation, prayer, and God's Word give us the victory as we simply take our stand on that field of battle. I don't need to tell you that these are fierce enemies. I'd rather stand in front of a tank or 900 chariots than whatever is described by this. I don't think Hollywood could come close to giving you a scare like these principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age... I mean, these are incredibly powerful, wicked foes that are against you. And God says, okay, that's great. I've given you some armor. Just stand where you stand in the truth, in righteousness, with peace, on the word of God, with prayer, those kinds of things. God sends us out against overwhelming odds. Get used to it. If you feel overwhelmed, it's because you are apart from him. Oswald Chambers writes this. He says, God does not give us overcoming life. He gives us life as we overcome. The strain is the strength. If there is no strain, there is no strength. Are you asking God to give you life and liberty and joy? He can't, unless you accept the strain. Immediately you face the strain, you get the strength. If you spend yourself out physically, you become exhausted. But spend yourself spiritually, and you get more strength. God never gives you strength for tomorrow, or for the next hour even, but only for the strain of the minute. If you feel you're on a battlefield facing overwhelming odds, you are right where you need to be to see truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, prayer, and God's word prevail. Now secondly, we're going to see how God sees to it you overcome against overwhelming odds. One of the great lines in the Lord of the Rings film trilogy was uttered by Gimli the Dwarf. To clear the way for Frodo and Sam to reach Mount Doom, Aragorn suggested that the forces of the West march headfirst to the Black Gate of Mordor in an impossible mission to serve as a diversion. Gimli gave it a moment's thought and then said, certainty of death, small chance of success, what are we waiting for? It's a great courageous line. The 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun must have had dwarf courage. It's almost the perfect quote to utter after hearing the Lord's seemingly crazy suicide plan, except they probably changed it to no chance of success. But they went. Now Heber, the Kenite of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree at Zanaim, which is beside Kadish. They reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. A renegade Kenite, Heber had aligned himself against Israel and with King Jabin. He acted as surveillance for Sisera and provided him with intel that Barak was mustering men for battle. He didn't know it, but Heber was part of God's plan. After all, this was not going to be a sneak attack. In order for the plan to work, someone must tell Sisera that Israel is mounting an attack. So Sisera gathered all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him, from Herosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. 10,000 Israelites seems like a big number. Wouldn't fewer guys getting the victory bring God greater glory? That's, that's If you're thinking that, that's good. Because usually, I mean, we'll see with Gideon and some of these other guys, God says, now you have too many. I can't get the glory with that many and so here it seems like an inflated number, but that's not the way to look at this one. Because on the surface, this is a suicide mission. No one would give odds for them to live through the day. Finding that many guys for what on paper was a martyr mission says a lot about their trust in God. I mean, this is—I it, think it's unusual that this many people would would go down to battle with that strategy. And that is giving glory to God in the fact that they put their trust in him. And So verse 14, Then Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And by the way, the Lord had done nothing so far other than through uh, Deborah say that he had gone before them. Now, since this was God's strategy and since Deborah spoke for God, it seems natural she'd give the go-ahead. That's a nice, uh, nice nod to her uh, at, at this time. Notice the absolute continued stupidity of this. On the hillside, you might have some chance against iron chariots because they'd be coming uphill, maybe in some rough terrain. In the valley where they advanced, you were simply roadkill against chariots. You ever see Ben-Hur? Remember the original Ben-Hur? Man, that chariot race, still the greatest thing on film, if you ask me. Uh, and, I mean, they're just tearing people up, left and right. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak and Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. The author tells us what the Lord did before we learn how he did it. He wants to emphasize that it was the Lord and no one else who routed Sisera. So how did he do it? Well, chapter 5 tells this tale in song, and there we read this. The kings came and fought. They took no spoils of silver. They fought from the heavens. The stars from their courses fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. That ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon, oh my soul, march on in strength. Putting a lot of different pieces together, here's what happened. God sent a freak storm. It rendered some of the chariots un- unusable, stuck in mud and mire. Others were washed away by the overflowing of the brook Kishon, and the soldiers drowned. The Canaanite infantry became disoriented, and they fled. But Barak, uh, Barak rather, pursued the chariots and the army as far as Herosheth Hagoyim, And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Some of the chariots were also able to retreat. And what a sight this must have been. Israelites running on foot, picking up the abandoned weapons of their enemy, chasing chariots. a, a, A man with a sword and no other armor, chasing an armored chariot. Now the Canaanites probably understood that they had walked into a trap Not set by Barak, Barak, but by the God of Israel. These Canaanites, superstitious people, super superstitious. And don't forget, they had heard and seen, in some cases, some of the miraculous things that the God of Israel had done. When the Israelites first came into the Promised Land, the people of Jericho were terrified because of what they knew God was capable of doing. And, well, they should have been because their walls didn't hold. And, and so the, the Canaanites, once, you know, you're coming, the battle is all but over, and the next thing you know, there's a torrential downpour, the, there's a flood, uh, you're being routed, and you have to think, hey, we have just walked into one of these biblical traps that Jehovah sets for people. We need to get out of here as fast as possible. But fleeing was to no avail. However, verse 17, Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. Sisera went to the camp of his loyal intelligence officer, seeking a hiding place. He expected that Jael, Heber's wife, would be sympathetic. Now we can deduce that he would have died on the field of battle at the hand of Barak had Barak been obedient from the start, but instead he gets away and he comes to this place of, he thinks, safety. Verse 18, And J.L. went out to meet Cicero and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, don't fear. And when he had turned aside with her to the tent, she covered him with a blanket. And then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him. The blanket was probably a large rug on the floor of the tent. He got under it as a kind of hiding place. It might have even been a hiding place that they would use from time to time uh, for different reasons. And so he was in their little hiding place. And she gives him what the, the actual word is, heavy cream. And commentators claim uh, that it causes sleepiness. I, I don't drink heavy cream. But I have drank it before, and it didn't put me to sleep, so I'm not quite sure if that's the truth or not. They act like it's, it's like getting the old version of NyQuil. Remember when NyQuil was NyQuil? Man, when I was a kid, I used to want to be sick so that I could have NyQuil, you know? And in my family, old Italian family, when you had a cough, it was treated with whiskey. And so, you know, I'm like 10 years old and I'm down in shots of whiskey, which I'm sure was healthy for me. But uh, anyway... I think she was just going overboard on hospitality to disarm him. No, turn aside. You're safe here. We have a hiding place. You want water, but I'm going to give you the best of our household. You're absolutely safe. He would have been better off with water. He was, you know, heavy cream. I don't think it really flakes your thirst that much, you know. But but she was setting him up. And he said to her, Stand at the door of the tent. If any man comes and inquires of you and says, Is there any man here? You shall say no. You've heard of the bridge of spies. This was the tent of spies. Only J.L. was going to prove to be a double agent. And here it is, verse 21. Then J.L., Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple and it went down into the ground. For he was fast asleep and weary, so he died. That's my favorite line. So he died. I guess he didn't just flail around, you know, or say, hey, man, I got a headache. I mean, this is brutal. Now, women were tasked with setting up and tearing down tents, so JL would be pretty adept with a mallet and tent pegs. I'm not a camper. And I'm not saying that to diss any of you who camp. I think camping is a great pastime. We have serious campers and hikers in our church. I mean, guys that go up into the wilderness and wrestle bears, you know, uh, you hand to hand. I mean, serious. I mean, this is crazy. I can't, my idea of camping is, with the kids, we do camp overs sometimes in the living room. And it's hard for me to set up those little tents, you know, and stuff. But at least we have fun doing that. But uh, anyway, so she, she's pretty good with a tent peg. I'm guessing this is the first murder that she committed, but who knows? Heber had helped Sisera. Now his wife killed him. Again, commentators seize on this to talk about disharmony in the home. But I'm going to go out on a short limb here and suggest that Jael might have been trying to help her husband. I think we have to assume she knew Heber had been the one to warn Sisera of Barak's advance against him. She had also heard by now of the rout of Sisera by Barak. She deduced that Barak was in pursuit of Sisera and that Barak would prevail since the God of Israel was obviously giving them victory. So her husband and her household were on the wrong side of history. They had chosen the wrong side. And I think the only way to save her husband was to dispatch Sisera herself to take sides, as it were, against Sisera and be able to say, at least by her deeds, Hey, buddy! This is what we had in mind all along for you to defeat your enemy. If I was Heber, I'd be thankful, but I'd also sleep with one eye open. <laughs> Could you imagine ever going to sleep again with your wife, J.L.? Where are the hammers, honey? Too? Have you seen the hammers? I No, what's that bulge under the covers? The author of Judges, who we say is Samuel, makes no moral judgment on these actions. In chapter 5, she's praised in the song for them. She did what she needed to do in a time of war to protect her family. Verse 22, Then as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said, Come, I'll show you the man who you seek. And when he went into her tent, there lay Sisera dead with the peg in his temple. Deborah predicted that this would happen, so any thoughts Barak might have had about going after Heber were put in check. It all seemed to be falling into the will of God. And and I mentioned God's providence. In theology, providence is His providing for His plan. To see to it, His will is always accomplished. But God does it without violating free will. In this case, God was providing by sending Barak into battle. He would have gotten the glory by finishing off Sisera. When Barak balked, God provided someone else. He provided Jael. His providence saw to it his will was accomplished, but without violating free will. And so nothing catches God by surprise. He said, Deborah, tell Barak to do this. Barak said, I'll do that, but not wholeheartedly. And God says, okay, that's still going to happen, but it's going to happen a little bit differently now. The great example of this that I like to use is the story of Esther in the Old Testament. She finds herself queen of Persia. The king doesn't know she's a Jew, right at the time when Haman has the king issue a decree to kill all the Jews. And her uncle Mordecai, who's not a spiritual guy at all, says, you've come into power for this very reason, so that you could have the ear of the king and save the Jews. And then he says, but if you won't do it, deliverance will come from another source. God is never without Uh, another plan, another way. He just doesn't violate our free will. And, And that's why we don't blame him for evil. He is not the author of evil. He doesn't force people to do things against their will. And so verse 23, So on that day God subdued Jabin king of Canaan in the presence of the children of Israel. The hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin king of Canaan until they had destroyed Jabin king of Canaan. Now, in chapter 5, we'll read that they had rest for 40 years. It was a rest won over time as Israel increased in strength against King Jabin. That tells us that victory is a process. We have it, but we must walk in it, taking more and more ground all the time. And that seems to be how overcoming works. You take your stand, and then you wait for the Lord to act. Now, in the Bible, it can seem as though God acts quickly and supernaturally, and that he doesn't do that in your life. Uh, My trouble seems to go on and on without any supernatural interference. I keep waiting for God to send the storm that's going to sweep away my enemies, but it doesn't come. Now, while it's true that Barak acted, uh, in the case of Barak, that God acted rather quickly, their waiting must have been quite terrifying. I mean, put yourself in that valley. You're standing there. There's your captain, Sisera. Your prophetess is up on the hill. You're down in the valley. And all of a sudden, 900 iron chariots are bearing down on you. Imagine the shaking of the ground. Do you ever have, like, you uh, in your neighborhood, if you live in a tract area and stuff, all of a sudden you hear the ground shaking. You go out and some enormous truck is driving down the road. And you think, what are they doing here? You know, because they're out of place. And everything is shaking. This is shaking the ground. They're coming, they're coming, they're coming, faster and faster till you can finally see the faces of the soldiers. And man, these guys, they're killers. They'll kill you, dismember you, maybe even eat you. Who who knows? I mean these guys they can't wait to destroy you every which way. And and, and I'm sure more than one guy must have come up behind Barack and said, Did the Lord say stand or dig holes in the sand? Are you sure? <laughs> Are you sure that this is the strategy? And you know that God waited until the last possible instant. And then all of a sudden, damn! There was water everywhere, floods everywhere, people disoriented, and it was clear that God was involved in this battle. And so, yeah, that, their deliverance came quickly, but I don't know that I'd have the courage to stand in front of a chariot. One chariot, let alone 900. There are stories in the Bible of much longer times of overcoming, David, for example, before he became king, eight, maybe 13 years, somewhere in there, that King Saul was trying to murder him, that he was a fugitive running for his life, living and hiding in caves. And so the story here is to stand and see the victory the Lord will bring. If you're struggling while you're standing and your enemy is raging around you, truth and righteousness and peace and faith and salvation and prayer and God's word are the resources that are available to you that give you victory while the battle is taking place. They are more powerful than any storm that the Lord could send. And as I've been saying over the last few months, it would be easy for the Lord to remove your trial. What's hard is for Him to see you stand in it and trust Him. But it's better for us. Amen.